You are listening to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. Welcome to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Hampton. My Unusually Well-Informed guest today is Sandra Wendell. Sandra is a book editor, feature writer, and publishing consultant. She has been the author's editor for many award-winning, well-respected nonfiction books. Among her many happy clients is Dennis Geelan, author of The Zero In Formula and former guest on this podcast. Sandra is the author of Cover to Cover, What First-Time Authors Need to Know About Editing. Today, Sandra and I are discussing how the first-time author can get their manuscript polished and published. Sandra, welcome to the show. Tim, thank you for the opportunity. It's my pleasure. So Sandra, how did you arrive at the vocation of book editor? You know, there is no actual uh, major in college in editing. I started out as a journalist. I graduated from the University of Iowa. I worked in nonprofit communication and I ended up working with people writing books. And I guess that was always my love. You also have had to pay attention in English class. <laughs> right. That's good. Um, they say everybody has a book in them. Are you convinced? I think a lot of people do. And I think that the world is ready for people to write their stories. Now, that doesn't mean they have to publish them hmm. uh, wide for the world. But I do believe people need to write their stories. I, I think we're missing... We're missing oral histories. We're missing people's war stories. We're missing immigrant stories. And even if you just write your story for your family, I, I really think people need to write their stories. Yes. So, um, yes, people do have books in them. Okay. Um, that's terrific. I, lo I love that idea of chronicling maybe your, your family's story. That's so valuable. Um, what do you think holds people back from actually writing? Oh, fear. Uh, they, I just had an author send me a manuscript today. She said, you're the first person who's not a family member who's reading this. And she felt very vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And first time authors do feel vulnerable. Imagine if you wrote something, you know, in high school and, you're, and, and you turned it in to the, and to the teacher, you know, you always worried, you know, is it good enough? And, and I've never really tried to discourage anyone from writing, sharing is another big step for people. Right. Absolutely. Yes. yes. Um, this is somewhat of a facetious question, but is writing a book like writing 200 blog posts? Oh, you know what's happening now? People are going from blog to book. So they're, they're trying out their writing. They're developing their voice. They're creating blogs. And then they go, wow, I have enough here for a book. <laughs> so it's blog to book. But I also have the reverse. I have people who are concerned about their content. Will anyone find this interesting? Well, who is my audience? So I said, create a blog, start getting followers, and then you can make your book. So right. it's a two-way street. And blogging has, I, I really think it's changing some some book. Well, and people are using blogs to market their books too. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we're, we're talking about the realm of nonfiction. That's your, your preferred uh, variety. Um, 
what are the rules regarding how long a book should be in nonfiction? Oh, that's a good question that people ask a lot. There are, there are extremes. Sometimes people come to me with 4,000 words or 12,000 words and I go, okay, you have a good start. To, to actually create a book with a spine. I mean, if, if the book doesn't, you know, if it's too short, it's like a pamphlet. Right. And, and you can't really charge enough. So you, you should be in the 20,000, 30,000 range for nonfiction, at least. Um, fiction tends to be longer, 50, 60, 70, 80,000 words. Hmm. People, people talk about number of pages. Well, pages doesn't tell you anything. It's the sure. number of words that you need to know. But then I've had people bring me 180,000 words. And I go, okay, stop, <laughs> stop right there. How do you edit that? <laughs> well, you don't, you, right. you have either two books or you have a series or you slash and burn. Uh, it, yeah, that's too long physically to create a book with a spine this thick, you know, it's huge. It's cumbersome and it can't even hold together. So it'd be like a big phone book or something. And, and you're asking readers to give you time, not only the money, but their time to read that. And that's a big ask for a reader. Yeah, I agree. As so a reader, I agree. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, so let's say somebody's got their first 10,000 words and they're contemplating hiring an editor. What, what's, what's the timing like? When should I approach an editor? Uh, how many weeks in advance do I need to even find out if they're available? How does that work? I think a lot of people have the misconception that we editors can do magic and that we're clairvoyant and that we can read their minds. And I have to say we can't. <laughs> um, I like to get a book when the, I say to my authors, when you are sick of your manuscript, mm. when you can't look at it one more time, when you would just throw up if you had to read it again, that's when I want it. Not that you wrote it last weekend and you haven't revised because good writing is rewriting. And I'm talking eight times, 10 times. I mean, rewriting, big changes, structure, characters, everything, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. Now, there are people who have a, wonderful ideas. They're not the greatest writers in the world and they want to work with a book coach. And there are people who are called book coaches and they will coach you through the writing. They'll give you homework. They'll react to chapters as you write chapters. You, and I have done some of that. It's a lot of heavy handholding with people. And it's a process that takes years. Even I worked with someone well over a year from start to, to final manuscript so then there's that whole ghostwriter thing. People think that, you know, they can hire somebody to write their book. You still have to tell them your story. Yeah. And so many times those ghostwriting situations are people being interviewed by someone who actually writes the book, but they can't make anything up if it's a memoir. Um, I, I, I've, I've written some blogs about collaborating with other people in ghostwriting situations and in situations where let's say someone 
just can't write. Uh, I know a, a, this person was, um, was a famous athlete, actually. Fabulous stories. The person you wanted to sit next to at the uh, dinner party. Right. I mean, like, would regale you with stories. <laughs> Could not put paper and pen together. Right. That person needed to be interviewed and the story written by a journalist or a ghostwriter. And, and it, would have been a, it would have been a great book. I don't think it ever happened for him. But mm. um, or war stories telling, you know, war stories, those sorts of things. Yeah. When, when the story's there, but maybe not the words. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you say in your book, speaking of words, traditional publishing is broken and book agents can rot in hell. Oh. So can you expand on that? How do you really feel? You're calling, you're calling <laughs> me out, Tim. <laughs> I had some very bad experiences with book agents. The traditional publishing model is struggling because the, and, and the big companies in New York, are they're down to like four now. Their big model is selling into bookstores. Right. Well, guess where people are not buying books? Exactly. It's broken. Everyone can put their book on Amazon and sell on Amazon. And that's where people go to buy books. They might go to Barnes and Noble and see what's out there, but they're just shopping. But right. if somebody, We're having Starbucks. Uh, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so it's a broken model because as the, the, as the author, if you become your own publisher, the stigma has gone from mm -hmm. self-publishing. It used to be, it was sort of a vanity thing, but now the stigma is really gone and people are creating these, their own businesses and doing well marketing their product, which happens to be a book or a series or a fiction series. Um, and, and, and let me tell you what was driving that. The advent of digital printing. When you order a book on Amazon now and you click buy, the machine cranks up where close to where you are. Now I'm in Omaha, Nebraska. There's a, there's a big Xerox machine there in Illinois that owned by Amazon. The machine prints one copy of the book, prints the cover, binds the cover onto the interior, puts this thing in the mail and it's on the person's doorstep in two days. Yeah. It's called just-in-time inventory. It's digital printing. This is not ink on this on these pages. It is a digital printing process like a Xerox machine. Right. This has changed everything because anyone can publish anything. Anyone can get up on the Amazon. Uh, it's called KDP. That's their publishing platform, and that's good news and bad news. There's a lot of bad stuff up there, unprofessional. Right. And but that's where people buy books. So digital well, it, printing has changed everything. And you were saying it's broken. One of the things things that's broken is you're printing these books like in the old model. You're 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 putting together these books and you give them to the book uh, store on consignment, right? So they could wind right. up in the garbage. They wind up in landfills. Yeah, it's um, horrible. Bookstores do not generally own their inventory. It is there on consignment. Most people don't know that. And I was speaking with someone the other day who used to work at a bookstore. And after about 90 days, they box up stuff that isn't sold. And it goes back through the channels to the publishers. 
And that's, that's just not even good business. Yeah. Horrible for the environment too. Well, that, uh, the other big change besides digital printing is, is eBooks and audiobooks. Audiobooks are huge. COVID, <laughs> the silver lining in COVID was audiobooks. That's interesting because I'm, I'm an audiobook fan, but for the commute. So mm-hmm. now that the majority of time is spent at home, I'm actually reading more, not listening more. So you find the opposite that people are, or just because they have more time on their hands? I think it's sometimes it's a generational thing. People yeah. want to listen and multitask. Right. For they're cooking or whatever. They're at the gym or they're cooking. Um, yeah. 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 Uh, I am not an audiobook person. I can't concentrate. But I do read on Kindle on, on an iPad. Mm-hmm. I will yeah. read an ebook. I read lots of ebooks. I've, I've, I've started doing that too. And it's almost a shame because I like being able to go, ta-da, when I, I have know. my guest's book. But uh, it's not quite the same when I have a Kindle on the shelf. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. But um, it's still money in the pocket of the author. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about how self-publishing works. You referred to KDP, which I believe is Kindle Desktop Publishing or Digital Direct. Publishing. Kindle Direct Publishing. Direct Publishing. Um, so is that just a matter of uploading a file and you're in business or how, how do you, how do you do Pretty that? Much. Yeah. Pretty much it is. Uh, you, in, in the model that I like for people who, who become their own company, they either form an LLC or incorporate into a publishing company and their product is their book. And it's produced by working with a cover designer so you have files that you upload to the Amazon platform called KDP. You upload your cover. You upload your interior, which is designed by professionals. You upload an ebook file called an EPUB. So it's not doesn't have page numbers. You know, when you're reading an ebook, it's continuously flowing, and whatever size the person has chosen. You can work with an audiobook voice, a professional voice to, to record your audiobook. And that goes on a different platform called ACX, which is also owned by Amazon. <laughs> yes, Amazon owns the publishing world yes. and has changed it. And so you are off, you you create your account, and there you are. You have your paperback. You can even do a hardback now on Amazon. You have your ebook and you have your audiobook. So when when you do your marketing and you send a potential reader to your Amazon description page, they can buy your book in whatever format you they prefer. Right. You want to yeah, offer I've noticed that formats. as a reader. That's terrific. Right. So you decide the price, you decide your cover, you decide everything as a self-publisher. Now there's a lot of people making bad decisions and doing poor covers and you'll see <laughs> lots of that, yeah. but it's a business. And when an author can emotionally pull back from the emotional part of the, of the product, they, some, some of them do very well in their marketing. So in your book, you gave away a two letter giveaway that a book is self-published. I'm not sure what you're. Buy. Oh, 
Can you can you expand on that? That's such a funny story. You mean the mistakes that people make? Yeah, the mistakes that people oh, would make. You know, when you uh, this is going to look backwards, isn't it? When no, you, no, I can see it straight. Oh, you can't. Um, I don't have any here, but okay, I'll I'll promote some of my my. I love this book. You'll see amateur mistakes that people make. First time author amateurs. They'll say bye. They'll have B Y and then their name. <laughs> that's kind of a tip off. Yeah. It, 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 made, it reminds me when I read that, it reminded me of, you can always tell a kid's drawing because the sky doesn't touch the ground. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and another couple of those are uh, in the table of contents page. Instead of saying contents, they say table of contents. Interesting. Okay. Very amateurish. Don't do that. Some clues. Now, see, all, all these people are going to, they're going to run to their books and say, oh my God, I made that mistake. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, so one of the bits of advice, I know that you, you, um, you're quick to point out that this book is really about the relationship, the, the book that we're, we're talking about a little bit, which is cover to cover. It's about your relationship with your editor. But you also say, okay, fine, I'll give you some advice on how to write a book too, because you know people reading this book are desperate to know. And one of the things you you said that I thought was really helpful was revise your book in reverse order. Did I say that? Um, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, here's what happens. I, and I actually teach how to write a book for our community college. And I've worked for 12 years with continuing ed students who are so into writing books and it's just a delight when you when you write your book so you've got all your you have your word document let's just most people write in, in word documents they actually don't handwrite anymore or if they do it has to eventually end up on a computer right they'll start at the beginning and go through well guess which chapters get the most editing and read them the first ones mm -hmm. so start at the back and move forward uh, is another tip to kind of change your brain a little bit to see your book in a new light. The problem is you wrote it, you know, what's there and you're never even going to see typos. You're not going to see missing words or extra words because you're the author. You're so close to that forest. You're just on top of the trees. It's <laughs> you cannot be objective. Even if you put some time between the writing and the revising, but that's okay. You're still the author. Mm -hmm. But that's a tip, you know, that people can try, but, but, but they really better have a pretty solid manuscript when they're doing that. Yeah. But I, I think, I think your point is well taken. The book is always going to have a beginning. And so if you just keep revising the beginning, the you end know. is not, is going to be weak in comparison. It can. And, and chapters seem to get shorter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've done yeah. already. <laughs> yeah. um, one thing I find uh, is and the reason I brought up this idea that a book is 200 blog posts, a blog post is easy to maintain a narrative through, you know, it's a couple of pages, maintaining a narrative through 20,000 words or 40,000 words on a screen this big. It's like looking, it's like the periscope, right? You, you nothing, 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 seven destroyers, nothing, nothing. Like you, you have such a you're looking down a straw at your own document. Do you have any tips on how to deal with that when you're trying to make a narrative flow through your book? Well, I, I'm a list maker. I have to have an outline. Right. I have to work from that outline. Some authors are not. 
and, and I'm talking about nonfiction, it's a lot easier to have an outline, which then kind of turns into your table of contents. Or contents. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning. <laughs> You're killing me here, Tim. Okay. Um, but in fiction, some people who don't have their story plotted out uh, can get down those rabbit holes and get off track. And as an editor, it's my job to help people get back on track structurally. And one of the biggest questions people ask me is, does this flow? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's always, that's always, you know, I mean, it's a judgment call, but I mean, I can tell I may have done it a few times Sure. because the authors aren't objective. And you also want to be open to the editor's comments. Uh, you're still the author. You still get to make that final decision, but be open to the editor's comments. Especially when the comment might be of the form, I don't understand what this has to do with the rest of the book. Right. right? There's going to be sections right. in there that, that if for want of a paragraph setting the table for why we're, we're exploring this as well, you might lose you might lose your reader's interest. Well, there's always that danger. And I've read the, I've read studies about the books that people leave behind on airplanes and in hotel rooms <laughs> because they were done with it. They didn't want to finish them. Hot tip. Never start a book you found on a plane. <laughs> yeah. Somebody <laughs> hated it. <laughs> um, I was going to ask if we could talk about beta readers, that's kind of an interesting topic. Yeah, please. I, I don't know if you had, because you were talking about the editor is one person's opinion. And, and yes, I think an author wants to know what the editor thinks, but I like to say, look, I'm just one person. I may not even be your target reader, right? meaning book buyer. I'm not the person who's going to take out my credit card and buy your book. So mechanically, I can tell you if your book is sound, I can tell you if the story hangs together, but the real test is the reader, the, your typical reader. And lately I've been doing this wonderful process called a beta reader process. And I find about 15 to 20 people who number one, don't know the author, not related to the author by marriage, DNA or work who are typical target readers. And and the ones I've been doing lately are business books. So I have professors of business. I have business people, people like Dennis Gielen, who wrote the book on entrepreneurship. And we give them the manuscript, a final manuscript. And then the author and I come up with about 10 questions that get to the, and they can't be answered by yes or no. So you don't say, what do you think? Or, you know, how did you like the opening? <laughs> we ask them the structural questions about the content to make sure that the author is hitting those targets. It's brutal. Mm-hmm. The comments come back to me, not directly to the author. I, I filter them, but I don't, I don't soften them. And I say, okay, uh, there's a trend. You know, three or four people mentioned that your opening was weak and they wanted another example. And one person just went crazy and threw you under the bus. We ignore that person. They're having a bad day. But five people wanted more information about the model. That gives the author all kinds of great ideas to go back and revise. Because wouldn't you rather have those people telling you that than seeing them in Amazon reviews? Right. 
Absolutely. Uh, with one star. <laughs> yeah. So the beta reader process, and you should never pay a beta reader. Some people are out there on Goodreads and groups, beta reader groups and saying, oh, I'll read your book for $20. Don't pay anyone. Beta readers want to be in on, they just want to be helpful. And they mm -hmm. kind of like reading um, new stuff. Yeah. And I would think that some of these communities must be uh, groups of authors because you're invested in seeing the clay made into the sculpture, right? So you're, you're interested in the process. They are. And, and some of the ones in my beta reader groups are people who are authors themselves who benefited from a beta reader process and know how important it is for an author. Yes. Yeah, that's terrific. Yeah. Is that a reasonable source for um, endorsements or whatever they call? It can be. It can be if we can get people, they're more likely better as reviewers. So at the end of the beta read, when the book finally comes out, the author will send all the beta readers a copy of the final book mm -hmm. and then an ask, would you mind giving me an Amazon review? Right. And really those are gold to an author. They really well, Especially because they come so early, right? They may even come before. Uh, you can't put in a review up really until the book is out, True. out. Yeah. but you can say, I received a copy of the book. I was an early reviewer for the book. Yes. Um, and you want to get some reviews up once you go live with your yeah. book. Yeah. yeah. No, that is important. Getting a little buzz in the beginning. That's all the, all the algorithms go, right? Yes. And, and, you know, there are a lot of people out there selling all these big plans and publishing sure. schools and stuff. And, uh, and webinars. And, and I have to say, no one knows the Amazon algorithm. Only Amazon. Yeah. We can guess. Well, we I've guess. encountered some of this because um, uh, for a while there, my, my girlfriend and I were selling jewelry online. So you're always trying to game Google or Amazon or whatever. And I mean, you can say what you will about these companies. They're genuinely trying to identify which books people will enjoy or which products people will enjoy, which links they will actually care to go through. Right. And so if you're trying to game the system, they're trying to figure out how you're trying to game the system all the time. Well, yes. And, and, and there was, there were terrible uh, schemes with uh, buying reviews mm -hmm. through third world world countries. So Amazon really clamped down on reviews very yeah. hard to get your review up. Yeah. Um, yeah. What's the science be behind uh, being best selling? I hear there's some gaming to that process. There is, there is. Let's say you have 30 friends and you give them all a $20 bill and you say Thursday at noon, I want you to go buy my book. So I'm the best selling author at Thursday at noon. <laughs> yep. For five minutes, yeah. for five minutes. Uh, and that's, that's okay. Uh, I've seen lots of new books hit number one bestseller status for a day or so. Yeah. And, and they're called number one new release. Sure. And fine. Andy Warhol was right. 15 minutes. Yeah. 15 minutes of fame. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Um. A couple of more uh, process questions, if, if I may. One is that sure. I thought was really handy was you said, put to come markers. So like, 
or what I do is just question, 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 because you're going to edit that out. You're never going to leave three question marks in a row, but just ways to sort of say, I'm done with this paragraph. I don't know how to finish it. I'm moving on. Oh, those are markers you leave as you're writing. Yeah. Don't get hung up on something. If you're trying to come up with a word or, you know, an example is coming or, you know, that I really want to put a graphic in here, just put stuff in brackets. It'll be easier to find it later. Um, and, and that's a good way to prompt yourself to, to go back and fill in things. Yeah. And you know, you're not done editing until all of those are out. Either you give out. up on it totally or out. <laughs> fill it in. Yeah. Right. Um, so when you're working with your editor, another process question um, is you, you, I think your process involves word and track changes. Can you talk a little bit about how that works? Yes. Um, the, the track changes feature in Word, the software Word on PC or Mac is very powerful because it allows the editor to make changes that, are, that then show up in a different color. And if you've never used it before, it, you can find it on the review tab at the top of your Word document. And you turn track changes on and then any keystrokes are captured and you see them. The other beautiful feature of that is there's this comment and I can click on comment and then it leaves a little bubble over here on the right. And I can, I have complete conversations with authors in the margin and, and they're wonderful. I leave, I, I mean, I, I leave nice notes like, wow, this is an amazing story. But I also say, you know, I love this idea. Do you have an example? Mm-hmm. So, as an editor, it's so powerful. It allows me to have that conversation with the author. And then we eventually clean all that up. The authors respond to the comments. It's become part of the rewrite process. If we do a two-pass edit, I do a major pass with, you know, it's all marked up. And like the old English teachers with the red pens and everything. <laughs> I don't like to put my English teachers down. I, they're beloved people. Yeah. at the marginal comments. And it's not like I'm like a good editor is, is not going to say, what are you talking about here? They're going to say, do you mean X or do you really mean Y? And maybe we should state it this way because we're not English teachers. We're, we're there to help the author. And, and we are that first early reader. And if I'm confused, readers are going to be confused. Mm-hmm. So that's how we have, that's how we do it. That's how we do it. So our goal is a clean word document. Right. And um, that's when the editing process ends. Well, sort of, but yes. And then, okay. So then, then, as you said before, you, you have other professions involved. So you have a, a cover designer and you mentioned something about designing the, the text within the yes. contents. Yes. Uh, I gather you have to design. You do. Um, and, and is that usually stick handled by the editor or does the author have somebody else in mind? What, what's the, what's, I would imagine the editor would usually be the, the sort of contractor with subcontractors. Not necessarily. No, sometimes editors are editors. And when, my, when that editing is done, they're done. Mm-hmm. But I've discovered that I hate to throw my little baby birds out of the nest <laughs> uh, into the world of production so I have uh, some recommended, you know, cover designers and interior people and ebook people and uh, that I can have them check out. 
Um, the problem is there are so many predatory companies online. If you just do a Google search on help me publish my book, yeah. you're going to find companies that they, there are many that can help you and they're fine and they can take that whole process and do it. They can edit, they can produce it and then get you up on Amazon. Uh, but in the past, there, there have been some predatory companies that, that are, are less than scrupulous. Uh, so I find that a lot of authors like to do it themselves. They li like to look at portfolios of cover designers and pick one and work with that person. And then the interior designer takes over and, and makes the, the interior design look like the cover. There's some fonts they can use. And then once that's all set, then that those final PDF pages that are your actual book pages go through another process to be to create the EPUB file for the ebook. Right. And, and then um, you and then you then you you do your audiobook. So there are steps. There's a there's a logic mm -hmm. here. Yeah. Um one of these steps I we're overlooking, or at least I'm overlooking, is ISBN number. How is that conjured up? The ISBN is like your VIN number on your car. Mm -hmm. So every version of your book needs an ISBN, which is mm. International Standard Book Numbers, blah, blah, blah. Okay. That's how Barnes & Noble knows. That's how Amazon, Amazon also assigns other numbers called an ASIN, but um, if you register it, you, your company, your own little self-publishing company that you have, you can go and buy your ISBN numbers in the name of your company. And that means if anyone looks that up, there you are. It's your company. It's your name. If you work with a company that assists you in publishing, they may assign a number of their company. Right. I prefer to own my own ISBNs and own my, now that has nothing to, it's an identifier mm -hmm. that has nothing to do with copyright. Fair enough. There's always confusion. You yeah. always own your copyright. You created it. You put it in a fixed form, a book. You own this. You own the words in this order. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's copyright. And you said something interesting there um, that you need an ISBN for every version of your book. Yes. And do you mean every, uh, uh, like whether it's a hard copy or hardcover, softcover audiobook, or do you yeah. mean I've rev I've revision one, revision two? Do I need a new ISBN when I revise? Yes. If you okay, revise that's interesting. Yeah. You will. Let's say you have your book in four formats: hardcover, softcover ebook and audiobook you will have mm -hmm. four isbns okay five years later you revise the the book you have four new ones if okay, you revise so that, it more than 20 percent. so you got my hopes up when you said i i read maybe i misinterpreted but you said that basically if you find something wrong with your book you can upload a new pdf to correct it yes do I need a new ISBN for that? No. Or can you just sort of fudge and say, this is just a corrected version? You don't even say anything. You just, you just, <laughs> you find those, those typos that made you crazy yeah. and you, you fix your interior files Okay. and you re-upload those to the KDP platform. And so any book printed or distributed after that has your changes in it. But unless you make like a, 
like I did a book with a doctor at Mayo Clinic and we did 10 years later, we did a second edition. We didn't even call it that. We just brought the book out with the same name, but it was so totally different. It has a new ISBN, a different cover and everything. And that's, an, that's when so you So for substantive new- changes, but not for typos. Right. Okay. You, you can quietly, carefully <laughs> fix your typos. I don't know why anybody. your book has a typo. Mine's perfect. No, I have, I have a copy of my book. I call it error copy. And uh, every time someone says something or I see something. And so when I get like 10 or 20 little things I want to fix or change or update, I will do that and re-upload probably in the next quarter. That's so sneaky. Then you can be like, I don't know why everybody else's books has errors in it. I'm an editor. I I don't (laughs) have any, (laughs) you know, I never guarantee perfect. We're, yeah. we're just human. We're just human. Of course. Um, why do you prefer Chicago style? And what, what are the implications of that? Um, that is the book industry standard. The Chicago, the University of Chicago has created this Chicago manual of style. It tells editors and writers what to capitalize, where to, put commas, what gets hyphenated, and how to handle all these style issues. It's huge, (laughs) and it's detailed, (laughs) and it will make you crazy. Sure. But it brings consistency and professionalism to your work. If in doubt, refer to it. Right. Now, the other styles are like AP. So if I were writing for a newspaper, it would have a different style. A big, just for an example. Chicago says spell out numbers. So we spell out numbers up at least to 100. Mm -hmm. But if I were writing an article for the local newspaper, we would use numerals. You take up too much room. They do. They do. So these are style points. And then the old Oxford comma, the serial comma, that's just this huge thing that editors can geek out about all day. Yeah. And I don't want to even talk about it. Okay. But what does Chicago say about that? Use it. All right. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can even recognize it in my own work and correct it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I am writing a book, which I would like to assert is nonfiction. Okay. Um, and by that, I mean, I'm, I'm peppering it with footnotes, uh, partly so I have something to refer back to, but also if there's ever any question about where I dreamt this up, I can say, well, I found it in a legitimate source. How much is too much and how much actually winds up in the finished product? You mean of citation? Yeah. Well, okay. I don't know anything about your topic. Is it not an academic book? No, it's not academic. It's for consumers. It's a business book. A business book. Yeah. Okay. In that case, I say to people, don't use academic conventions in your book because your readers will think it's an academic book Mm. and they will, they will run away. (laughs) Okay. But you do have to give credit where credit is due. So if you're talking about a study at, the, at Harvard University that looked at people's behaviors, and it was published in the Journal of uh, the American Psychological Association, you would put that, you could actually build that into the narrative. You could say a Harvard study looked at 23 subjects, and the results were published in the Journal of the APA. You could put that right into text. And you're covered. I mean, mm. 
So a reader could say, oh, I could go find that study. Okay, now if you were if that were an academic work, you'd either have a superscript footnote, maybe something at the bottom of the page that makes consumer readers just cry. Or another technique is end notes. Mm -hmm. So in this whole chunk at the back, you have end notes by chapter in order where you say the Harvard study referred to uh, was published in this journal. And then you give the citation. You can also have a whole reference section in the back of the book. No one will ever read it, but right. you've covered yourself. Right. Yeah. Okay. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it definitely does. I mean, I, I think for the drafting process, I'll continue with the footnotes because first of all, that's all I can do in uh, Google Docs. And I like Google Docs just because it's always on the cloud. I can get to it from anywhere. You know, I like that. Um, but but when I get to the point where I'm ready to to share it with an editor or, or maybe after I would share it with an editor first that way I suspect. And then we might agree to move all of that into EndNotes. Uh, yes. Depending on how many, I mean, I just did a book that had like 10 pages of, of uh, references. Oh my God. That makes editors poke their eyes out. Sob. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've seen an alternative and that was somebody said, refer to my EndNotes on my webpage. That's the other thing. You can um, you can move all that to a web page, uh, and and other materials, yeah. which gets people interacting with you on your on your web, uh, <laughs> and and gets and then you get them to sign up for your blog, so they get email. You know, you that's how you build your following, right? Kind of your tribe. You yeah. mentioned Google Docs. I prefer not to edit in Google Docs. It's just not as powerful as track changes in Word. So right. if if you built it in Google Docs, and and a lot of people do like that, you can download it as a Word document. Oh, sure. At the end, yeah. before I go to somebody else, before I go yeah. to an editor. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, you also caution authors on regionalisms, okay? Ooh. Give me an example. What did I say? Well, just that uh, as a Canadian, and I probably you were talking about Dennis. Uh, I bet I, oh, I was, yes. Life yes. at the cottage, right? And, and whereas in the States, you would say cabin. So would you say cottage if you were at a little lake? Thing? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm uh, in cottage country or pretty close. I mean, I'm wow. between Toronto and cottage country. Yeah, see, we, no, American English, it would be cabins or lake resort yeah, or something. Lake house or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I work with uh, people who are writing in British English too, who want to use Americanisms and it's much easier to, to find those and switch them over. You don't go to the loo, you <laughs> go to the bathroom. Right. And those are fun. They're fun yeah, to find. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, a couple of things that you talk about that are almost like, well, they're not peeves, but they affect work, um, how readable something is, but passive sentences, wordiness. Uh, that's pretty tough for an author to detect, I would imagine. How, how, what advice do you have on finding that yourself before you go to an editor and drive them crazy? Well, some people like to use those uh, programs like Grammarly. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a couple others, which I don't recommend because they will go through and flag a sentence and say passive voice. But sometimes passive voice is just fine. Right. And it's a judgment call. 
But if you're writing and every other sentence starts with it is or there are, then we have to do some serious looking at your writing style. Mm-hmm. And, and so some of those programs can point out those issues. Yes. Um, I don't know. Did that answer your, the question? Yeah, yeah, for that? sure. Um, and, and wordiness, that's, that, that's a tough one. How do you, how do you spot that? I'm, I'm pretty respectful to authors. I, you're the author. Your name's on the front cover. Mm-hmm. My name is not on that on the cover of that book. And if you, I just had this conversation today with a, an author in New York, how he's handling his dialogue. And I said to him, you're going to win every argument we have. I'm just going to point out that I think this seems awkward. But you think it's fine. It is not incorrect. It's your voice. It's your book. Or, it's, so, or even it's the character's voice. Maybe the character yeah, well, is awkward. <laughs> it, it, well, it, I thought it was. But yes, um, those are discussions you have with an editor. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm, I'm a respectful editor where I don't rewrite people gratuitously. But I have seen editors just rewrite people for no reason. Yeah. And I just had an author whose book was accepted by a publisher and the pub and, and I had edited it for him. And he's, and he knew that I would go crazy when I saw what they did to his manuscript because he went crazy. (laughs) And I said, you ask them, why did you change this? Is it incorrect? Mm -hmm. Hold their feet to the fire because it was gratuitous rewriting. And, and that I don't, that is, I think it's disrespectful to the, to the author. Yeah, I think you're right. Does the editor need to know your subject? Like, Whoa. should, should that be one of the criteria when you look for an editor? I absolutely think they should. Now I turn down a lot of work in areas that I just don't feel comfortable in. I mean, if it's all about um, some heavy duty financial stuff, I, I, I wouldn't know a, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know what's incorrect. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't want me not to know. So yes, I think they need some subject matter knowledge. Mm-hmm. I just found an editor for an author on a very heavy spirituality book. I could have done it. I could have gotten the commas in the right place. But I really think that he benefited from this editor who had a lot of experience in editing similar books. Yeah. That makes so sense. yeah. So yes, that's a that's a very good question, Tim. What is your opinion on authors uh, voicing their own books? When when should that be done? Like never. <laughs> <laughs> really, <laughs> I sound better in person. You know, I just need this proper sound booth. Well, okay. You have a professional voice. You have professional equipment. I assume you can engineer these things, but I have seen the magic that a professional voice can do and create these gorgeous audiobooks because you're in somebody's ear for six hours. Yeah. Any static is going to drive you crazy. Or turning a page, yep. the rustling of paper. I understand that the best way is to read on screen. Yep. See, so and, and then you can hear but my then mouse you, dragging. You don't want the mouse clicking. Yep. 
and then you want to be able to filter out and and modulate and put some bass in. And um, I mean, I know nothing about this, but I know enough that I want a professional voice. There's a good good version and a bad version for sure. Yeah, it can be. Yeah. Um, I spoke to an author recently who did uh, record her own book, and for her, it made so much sense because first of all, she has a great voice, but secondly. uh, it was about her, right? I mean, not just about her. It was about her and her relationship with somebody else. And it would have sure. just sounded really strange to her and probably anybody who knew her to hear it from somebody else's voice. Yeah, but a reader who doesn't know her, a listener, wouldn't. it wouldn't matter. True. There is a middle ground here. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I did with uh, my Mayo Clinic doctor's book, we let him record the introduction. Right. And it was lovely. Yeah, I can see yeah. that. Yeah. Um, how do editors price their work? There's so many factors to consider. That is the big question. Someone says, well, I wrote a book. How much will it cost? I go, come remodel my kitchen. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. How much is that going to cost? Or I've got this used car for you. Do you want to buy it? All right. How many miles? You know, how big is your kitchen? We need to see it. Mm -hmm. Oh, but I'll just send you a chapter. And there's 12 chapters like this. No, I need to see the whole thing. So there is an estimation process, though. You're not just giving it and saying, bill me after or anything like that. No, don't ever do that. Or see, I bill by the project. I want to see the I want to see the big picture. I can tell what I need to look at. I read at the beginning, but I also read in the middle. I skim through to see if there's any, you know, pages and pages of stuff that will, you know, detailed stuff that would be have to be fact checked. Mm-hmm. And then I know how long it will take me. I do not, I do not price by the word. I do not price by the hour. I price by the project. I know. And sometimes I give people a range because if they turn out to uh, after, I usually I do a two pass edit after the first major pass, we're getting cleaner and cleaner. But after the first major pass, let's say they added 3000 words and <laughs> cut out a chapter and changed a whole, it's like, okay, switch. now I'm Start. editing something new. It's a different starting picture. over. Yeah. 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 And that happens and that's okay. Well, it's so long as they have their eyes open. Right. So there's never a surprise. If you, most editors will tell you what it's about to cost. Yes. Yes. But to someone to just say, oh, sure, you need a copy edit. Uh, that's a two cents a word <laughs> that no, yeah. don't do that. They need to see it. And then they need, you need to discuss the process. And what um, what do you recommend? Let's say you have a family member saying, so I can't work with you, Sandra, but I need I need an editor for my book. Um, how many editors should I approach? is enough to find the right one. Mm. It's like a, it's like a speed date thing. I like to talk to people on the phone. I know a lot of editors, very shy, very introverted people. They would just rather, they would never talk to you on it. <laughs> they just want heads down right at the keyboard. Don't, you know, you need to, you need to talk to them on the phone. Mm. You, you just need to, to just have a discussion about the process and how it works and, and, and feel the passion from the editor about your work. I mean, it's your baby. Right. You're turning over your baby to somebody. 
and and you also want to check their references right talk to other authors who've worked with them and you want to make sure they've edited similar books so yeah it sounds yeah. like uh it's all it really is like hiring somebody to remodel your kitchen you need a few quotes you need a few references yeah. you need to make yeah. sure that you have the same taste right right and mm-hmm. and see the work that was quality work the best compliment to me is when someone in their acknowledgments section which is another another error for amateurs <laughs> they misspell the word acknowledgments okay the canadian way do you spell oh, it? Oh, no, I'm teasing. No. I'm teasing. <laughs> uh, and they thank me. And right. it's lovely. And I appreciate it. It's very nice. It's not necessary, but yeah. So uh, doctors make terrible patients, I'm told. Uh, how was your experience as an author? Did you work with an editor? I do. I have a mentor. And she is brutal. And I love her and I hate her. <laughs> but she makes my writing uh, she's good. She finds stuff. We all have quirks and she, she will come up with an elegant phrasing where I was awkwardly floundering around. So yes. Well, it is, it is a terrific read. Thank you. I, I, you know, that I like almost everybody else who read it was looking for errors. (laughs) Now did you find it? And you offered some up, but then, Oh, my hopes were dashed because you were illustrating the errors. (gasps) You remember oh, that there's a little yeah. section in there, and you're yeah. like, "Did you see the problem?" Yeah, so, you know, you dashed my hopes. I was hoping to come to you as something. So well, well done. <laughs> thank you, Tim. I'd love to edit your book. Let me see it when you're ready. Thank you. I will for sure. And my final question, and you sort okay. of answered that a little bit. <laughs> are you accepting patients, and how can authors reach you? I am. I do. I have a website. It's it's sandrawendell.com. It's and Wendell is W-E-N-D-E-L, one L. One L, yes. <laughs> yes. And if you're writing business or leadership, some memoir, I'm, I'm getting away from memoir. If it's a professional memoir, like I work with a lot of police officers and people in law enforcement on their memoirs. Uh, true crime books. I love true crime books. And I do self-help and health. And that's, my, that's where I'm comfortable. That's where I bring to the table for authors. And yes, I let me let me see what you've got. Love to okay. see it. Terrific. Well, thank, thank you so you. much, Sandra. Thank you for the infomercial. Yeah. Well, this has been a, a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Oh, you you're wonderful. You asked all the great questions, Tim. I appreciate it. My guest today was Sandra Wendell with One L. Sandra's <laughs> LinkedIn profile and more information about where to get her book cover to cover will be in the show notes. My name is Tim Hampton, and you can reach me at tim at unusuallywellinformed.com. Thanks for listening. I hope you will subscribe and join me for the next show with another unusually well-informed leader in business and technology. Thank you for listening to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. The opinions expressed by the host and guests on the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast are their own and do not reflect that of their employer or any other affiliation. 